You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to tell us how to get into graduate school. Yeah, you know, I thought, we don't really know exactly who listens to Talking Machines, but we suspect that there's some people who are interested in machine learning and could be thinking about trying to get some more training uh, or maybe thinking about a PhD. And so I thought I would try to take a minute and maybe demystify that a little bit to the extent um, that I can. Now, this is going to be uh, somewhat biased towards the process that I'm familiar with, both when I applied to grad school and also as somebody who admits people to grad school. Um, so take what I say with a little bit of a grain of salt and realize that every process is different and that your goals may be different than to go to, uh, to someplace like Harvard. So I'm going to talk about applying to PhD programs in particular, mm -hmm. where the, uh, they're going to be very research-focused, and the idea is to wind up with a PhD, not necessarily with the goal of going into academia, but, but um, to wind up with explicit research training that gets you a doctorate. So the biggest piece of advice that I would, um, that I would give to people who are applying to graduate school and PhD programs is to actually not think of them as PhD programs. Hmm. When you're applying to undergrad, you're applying to a big university and you'll interact with many, many different professors and you'll be a part of student life and you'll watch the sports teams and you'll live in the dorms. There's really a lot of different things that you're going to do in a lot of different ways that you're going to interact with that university. This really doesn't apply very much to grad school, I mm -hmm. should say. Um, it is true that departments and universities are ranked for grad schools just like they are for, uh, for undergrad, but particularly if you're applying to a PhD program, you really want to try to get a more nuanced view than that will give you. And in particular, you want to focus a lot on the particular faculty and their group that you would be joining. Like, don't think about this kind of uh, thing where you say, oh, I'm going to join, you know, I'm going to join the computer science program at Carnegie Mellon. But instead, think about, okay, you know, wow, there's somebody really cool doing stuff uh, at Carnegie Mellon that I want to go work with on X. And Carnegie Mellon is great because in addition to those, those people in X, there's also some other people in the related area Y that, I, that you, know, uh, you might want to go work with. So think about it in terms of choosing a lab, not choosing a university. That's exactly right. And, and the reason is simple. It's because that lab is going to have a much greater effect on your life than any individual professor did at uh, an undergrad. So you're going to be working very closely with um, the, the, the other grad students and postdocs who are there. And in particular, that you know, it's, a, it's a very large commitment to working with uh, a particular faculty member for many years. When you go and join a PhD program, you're probably looking at five years, but could be, could be longer, that you're going to be working with one person in particular. And if that person's interests don't align very well with you, yours, or they have a different kind of value system than you do about what matters in science or different interests, um, then you know, you, it could be a pretty miserable time. Or you'd find yourself needing to look for someone else to work with. And although the rest of the department matters, it in some ways matters less than mm. this person. The big picture is, you know, don't focus on don't focus on the university rankings or even necessarily the department rankings, but think about the set of people that you will work with closely when you get there because those people will sort of dominate your life. The way that admissions actually works when you apply, um, it varies from sort of big universities uh, or rather big departments that admit people kind of in mass. So there will be an admissions committee that sort of reads all of the applications and makes decisions on, you know, on who to admit. And then those people come, perhaps with some specific ideas of who they want to work with. But in general, maybe they spend a couple of years doing coursework, meeting different professors, and then zero in on a particular advisor and, um, 
and PhD topic. Uh, so, for example, I mentioned Carnegie Mellon. I think I think that's the way they kind of do admissions is is they have a fairly broad admissions um, sort of uh, committee, and then admit good students, and then those students figure out what precisely they're going to do kind of after they get there. And then smaller places, uh, so Harvard is more like this, also have an admissions committee, but the individual faculty tend to uh, make more direct decisions about who they're interested in working with. You know, for example, at Harvard, I would look through all of the applications of people who uh, identified me as a potential advisor. I would select some some subset of those, some very small subset of those that I'm interested in. Perhaps I would I would maybe I would interview those people, and then I would make you know strong recommendations to uh, to the committee, who would most of the time sort of like respect that um, those recommendations. And this is because if you want to do you know, if you want to work in my specific area, uh, Harvard doesn't have, you know, a huge range of faculty to work with. And so um, and so it wouldn't make sense to admit someone to work in an area who didn't want for whom that, fa- you know, that faculty wasn't a good fit. And this is just different at larger universities where there might be a bunch of people working in a particular area. So it varies somewhat. I mean, there's always an admissions committee, but the, the role of individual faculty does um, does vary. And I should say, you know, in sort of like Full disclosure that this is a this is a very competitive process in practice. That um, you know, just to give you a sense of scale, like you know, I would probably get a couple of hundred people who would identify me as faculty that they'd be interested in working with, and then, you know, in years past, I have admitted sort of between zero and two. So it, you know, it's a competitive process. So the question is, how do you prepare yourself to to have a very competitive application? And again, this is something that varies. People have wildly different criteria. For example. Uh, I don't care that much about grades, and this is because I didn't get very good grades. <laughs> and <laughs> the uh, and so um, I care about kind of maybe the challenging courses that you took. I'm mm. looking for people with very strong quantitative backgrounds who maybe took courses kind of aggressively, quantitatively, um, but I don't maybe care too much about like the difference between, I don't know, an A and A minus and a B or something. Um, I care about the ambition more. But my absolute sort of like top criterion, and I think this is a fairly common, you know, this is very common amongst sort of top PhD programs, is I'm I'm looking at your research experience. So being a PhD student is not very much like um, being an undergrad. You know, you have, as an undergrad, you have a lot of clarity about what what is expected of you, of what you need to do to succeed, what you need to do to graduate. A PhD requires a tremendous amount of autonomy. You're going to have to forge your own path, find a topic, work hard on that topic, and there's not going to be a lot of hand-holding. There's not going to be anybody who's really telling you exactly what you have to do to succeed in that. And that's because it's scientific research. You're going to have to figure it out. Your advisor will help you, will help train, and and hopefully support you the whole way. But just because you got good grades or succeeded as an undergrad, it, it just isn't necessarily very informative about, about how you'll succeed as a, uh, as a PhD student. What is informative about whether or not you can succeed in scientific research is whether or not you have succeeded in scientific research. So the the very best qualification you can have for applying for a top PhD program is to have already published papers and done good research in the area that you're applying to because everyone understands that. Um, If you are applying to my group and you uh, are first author on sort of NIPS and ICML papers, then obviously I'm going to pay attention to that. Now, it's very hard to write those kinds of papers and have to get that kind of in-depth, successful research experience as an undergrad. So in practice, what happens is you, you get yourself involved in research at a good group at whatever university uh, you're currently attending, 
And then the person who's advising your research will write a recommendation letter for you. And that letter will explain how effective you have been in uh, learning and executing scientific research. And I will read that letter very closely uh, to try to assess whether or not, uh, I, you know, you've you sort of shown the kind of skills that, that make it likely that you're going to succeed in graduate school. And so in practice, uh, you know, my kind of pattern is to look for letters from people that I know and respect and whose opinion I trust and see what those, see what those letters say. I would say that in sort of order of priority, I, would, I, look at the, I value the letters most, and then I also look at explicit previous research experience, and then um, sometime down the line, I will, look at, I will look at grades. One question, for example, that you might wonder is whether or not it's helpful to, uh, you know, to email the professor directly. Different people deal with this in different ways. I tend to get a lot of these emails, and so I, I tend not to read them closely. But on the other hand, I do read applications closely, so my best advice is to is uh, is to just apply. Um, that said, people are different. I, I would I would look at the professor's webpage, and sometimes that professor will have a sort of frequently asked questions about applying. How do I join your group? Kind of thing, and sometimes that will say, "Email me. Mm. I'd love to hear from you." Mm-hmm. Uh, and other times it will say, "Don't email me. <laughs> apply to the graduate program, right. and every, these applications get looked at closely." And I would strongly suggest that you. Cue closely to the recommendations on the professor's website. So trust in the process and do your background research. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, like, make yourself a great candidate. Go out, get involved in research as an undergrad as early as you can and really demonstrate that you're, you're going to be an amazing scientist. We'll have some more resources on applying for graduate school at our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about the intersection of machine learning and biology. Hello, Talking Machines. My name is Jake Parker, and I'm a recent science graduate currently planning a PhD in the fields of computational biology, bioinformatics, and hopefully machine learning. Machine learning has already provided biologists with a number of indispensable tools. Biological data, however, tends to be complex, noisy, and idiosyncratic in ways that require a tailored approach from dataset to dataset. Despite this, Researchers appear to come from two distinct spheres. Computer scientists who understand the machine learning algorithms and biologists who understand the systems, there aren't too many people who bridge these two fields. Do you see this as the natural state of two vastly different areas of research? Or do you think that it is simply indicative of the rate of change in our state of knowledge and perhaps even the birth of a new field? Thanks for the question. You know, this is, uh, this is a very lucky question to have today because we are sitting here with Jennifer Liscarden who is, in fact, a machine learning researcher, who is also a hardcore computational biologist, and who I think has very strong opinions on both uh, the sort of uh, size of that community and uh, and how to become a member of that community. Right, uh, absolutely. So the the questioner did mention something about the birth of a new field, and I, I think that field is already here. I think there are a lot of people who are combining computer science and biology, and already for some number of years now, there have been formal programs, uh, at least in North America and in Europe, that address this. Uh, And so graduates are, you know, the first graduates to get faculty positions from these kinds of programs are right now uh, coming out. But I think he has a point in that the number of people who do precisely machine learning in a rigorous way, uh, with a rigorous background in this field, is actually relatively small. So of this larger community, it's not very big. I think many of us know each other. It's quite a tight-knit little community 
of people. Uh, and so I think this, you know, that it's such an important area now that this will rapidly increase. It's a very wide mix of things. And like, I didn't start out from the outset doing this. And I took, a, as I said, a very long and winding road where I could kind of collect information field by field as I went along. And now that I've been doing it for so long, it's easier for me to put together. But I think it's quite a challenge to, because uh, you, I think to really do uh, deep, not deep neural, you know, not deep neural networks, but just sort of like, um, to seriously do machine learning and not just you know use it at a more superficial level without fully understanding some of the implications, you, I think you need quite proper training. And I would say that that's one of the first things you should do and not make the mistake of just sort of taking one intro to machine learning course and saying, oh, like now I know how to run Weka or I can use scikit-learn. Like yes, that will take you somewhere and it's very useful and it's great that a lot of people are doing that, but I think having a much deeper understanding and being properly trained in that area is actually immensely useful. And so I would recommend to this fellow to make sure to do that because I think you can contribute in different ways and ways that will have lasting, very lasting impact. Yeah, I, I want to sort of emphasize that. Like if you have the choice between getting hardcore sort of serious formal training in the machine learning, applied statistics, computer science, and then learning the biology, um, you know, sort of in an, in an informal research oriented way versus becoming a formal getting your formal training in biology and then trying to learn, the, you know, and then trying to learn all of the math later, I think you got to go with the first thing. But, and I think one reason for that might be also that, like, you can work in sort of, as I have done, I've sort of moved from niche domain to domain. And every time I work in a new biology domain, I have a whole uh, amount of, like, a large amount of learning I need to do. And, you know, I'm not an expert in these areas. I know enough to get by to help contribute and to speak with my collaborators about the parts that are important but like the common theme here is is that my contribution spans you know machine learning and that I look through my toolkit and my experiences across machine learning uh, for each of these and so there's a sort of an asymmetry in that sense one thing it seems like uh, that informs this is that whereas a lot of sort of more mathematical technical topics are sort of um, you know, have, have a huge amount of depth. That is to find the frontier of an area like statistics. Uh, you really need to spend a lot of time and have a lot of training. Uh, right now, it seems like biology is an immensely broad field. There's so many questions. The frontier of research is very close. You can get involved in research r relatively rapidly. I think what you're saying is that all the exciting advances are in biology and that statistics is so old and conservative yeah. machine learning that, that just as physics is that it's actually very you can be a top person in the field and it is very difficult to actually make an impact because there has been so much progress in these fields they're in some sense more saturated i think yeah that's, that's exactly what what, yeah and maybe saturation maybe saturation is, is the right way to think about it but for example I imagine that you wanted to become a pure mathematician and you wanted to write a, uh, you wanted to get to the point, and you want to think about the, from the moment that you decided that you wanted to become a pure mathematician, to the point that you could write a, a paper about a novel mathematical idea that was that was worthy of sort of going out for peer review. How long does it take you to get to that point? Although, you know, it's interesting, because I actually think you can bypass this by working in biology. So the funniest thing happened the other day. So I have one of my, uh, my one, I have a graduate student from MIT and Harvard, Hilary Finucane, who's working here, and we're working on a problem um, in statistical genetics. And one of the things that she's been investigating has to do with the eigenspectrum of a particular matrix, and it's actually quite an abstract theoretical concept that happens to have 
great importance with to what we're doing. And it just turns out that one of the theorems th uh, that's very useful for this turns to have been uh, proven by actually my friend, uh, I, had I didn't know, they just met the other day, Alex Bloomdale, who actually had proven this conjecture with his uh, colleagues. And so one can imagine that if he hadn't proven it, then Hillary, who comes from a math background, might have, you know, at some point later said, like, you know what, I want to try and, and prove this, and I'm aware of this, like, now because of this problem in biology. So I, I think, in fact, that you could end up doing that, although it doesn't usually happen because the people who are interested in proving these very theoretical concepts, if they, f if they find themselves in biology, it's because they've taken a turn towards more applied areas and are don't have the bandwidth to do that anymore because everybody, you know, has finite time. But, but I think the situations present themselves if you were, you could revert back to being a pure mathematician based on problems you encounter. Well, I mean, I think this is what makes doing this kind of uh, interface applied work most exciting is Absolutely. that it frames completely new questions and, and creates, you know, essentially creates areas that if you were sitting entirely, you know, in a methodological space, you would never see. Right, right. Absolutely. So hone your expertise and then explore your application? Yeah. And iterate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And iterate. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. Today our guest on Talking Machines is Jennifer Listgarten. She's a researcher at Microsoft Research New England. And we asked her the same question that we start with everyone. How did you get where you are? So I took a very uh, circuitous route, I would say, to get here. So my undergrad was actually in physics, and I had no computer science background. In fact, it was the most hated uh, class I took in high school for reasons I won't where go into. Where did you do your undergrad? Uh, my undergrad was at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, in Canada. Um, and then near the end of my physics degree, I guess in third year, I was looking for an elective and, and one of my physics colleagues said, you really like linear algebra, I think you should try computer science. And so I actually double booked it with an economics class and alternated between the two <laughs> until I decided that the economics one was, it was fascinating material, but it wasn't being taught in an interesting way. And the computer science one was more engaging for me. So I started uh, biasing my attendance to that class. And then kind of, it just all went from there. I decided physics was probably not the most interesting career opportunity for me. Um, it's a much older field and computer science is kind of thriving. And so I then just, I, I basically stuck around an extra year and did a whole bunch of computer science courses until I essentially had a degree and then decided to go to grad school. Uh, and Did you do any kind of research while you were an undergrad? Uh, I would say not so much. I was actually one of the few people that came to graduate school with basically no research experience. I'd been a little bit exposed to it, but in reality, I hadn't really done anything. So it was actually quite a shock for me, I think, compared to most people. So then did you do a master's degree first? So or? in Canada, people were, um, I think everybody was essentially required to do a master's degree first, and that was the norm, and I did. And actually, my plans had been during my undergraduate to do theoretical computer science. But uh, in my very last year, the sort of tack on year where I did all the senior level courses, I had a wonderful course by David Fleet, who's now in Toronto, who taught a digital image processing course. And this brought together this idea of like super abstract math, like Fourier transforms and, and problems that I could actually see on the screen and how the math actually was working. And this was just so deeply fascinating and exciting to me that I kind of 
completely threw away any notion of going theoretical and instead decided to go this uh, this applied route of actually computer vision, which was my first uh, sort of grad school experience. And then I, I guess, as I said, it was quite a winding route. So then actually, you know, I, I did some stuff there, but I decided I really loved science, in fact. And so I actually took two years off and worked at a cancer institute in Canada and I, where I actually sort of self-taught some machine learning and statistics because, in fact, I had taken none at the University of Toronto where I was in grad school at the time because the whole machine lear learning department at that time had actually picked up and left to go to Gatsby. And I didn't even know much about the topic <laughs> at all. And so it just sort of uh, self-taught and, and worked with people in-house in a cancer institute who were generating their own data. There were clinicians. There was sort of a whole package of people there that was well integrated. But at some point I decided I wanted to go back and learn how to properly do this, not just sort of on my own, and went back to Toronto and had this wonderful PhD experience with Sam Royce and Radford Neal. Um, and so sort of that was when I got into computational biology was between those two things. And, and that's the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit yes. at the University College of London. That is exactly the one, yes. Nice. So now you're at um, Microsoft New England. Yep. Um, what are you working on here now? So I'd say like the general theme of my research since uh, grad school and continues to be is generally computational biology, which means actually a lot of things to a lot of people. And some people who do this are more algorithm design people. As, as you know well, my background is machine learning and sort of applied statistics. So those are the two fields that I merge together. And so sometimes that is methods development and, and developing new machine learning models or applied statistics models or a better understanding like frequentist um, statistical testing or Bayesian uh, versions of that where sometimes it's just like you know what I really care a lot about this problem and I don't need a NIPS paper with a new method I actually just want to give something that the world will care about and use and so it spans quite a range in that sense. I'd say for the past roughly five years, I've been working in quite a niche field uh, of statistical genetics, uh, where in fact there are not very many people from machine learning working. And so one of the main problems I've been working there uh, in, in this area is called association studies. And there's different kinds of association studies. And so one in particular is genome-wide association study. And so the main problem here is essentially that you have some trait of interest. Often it's a disease. So you know, do you, are you, do you have cardiac disease or not of a particular type? And then uh, you have a bunch of people who don't, and you're interested in using the data of these people, in particular their genetics. So you basically measure their DNA at a whole bunch of positions on the, along the genome. Not every position, because some of these don't vary between people. And so only the ones that actually vary could be informative. And what you're hoping to do is to tease apart the causes of this disease. And that can be helpful for diagnosis, um, for different sort of paths the disease can take. Um, it can be helpful for treatment uh, and drug discovery, and so sort of a whole host of things. This is sort of the first step. And once you um, tease apart this sort of a hint of a causal genetic flavor here, then you'd sort of do more downstream things to follow up on that and establish that that really is it. But in any case, um, there are some quite interesting statistical challenges here. And so on the surface, it sounds like quite a simple problem. And so let me just state what that problem is. In the very simplest case, there are elaborations of this. But in the very simplest case, you would step through the genome one position at a time. And each person would have uh, one chromosome from one mom and one from dad. 
And so you would have an A and a T, for example, or two A's and two T's. And usually we assume that there's only a possibility of two letters at a position. So you can encode this as 0, 1, 2, depending on the number of the A's versus the other one, for example. And now what you do is you just say, uh, for all the people that have, uh, say, you know, cardiac disease versus who don't, is, the, is there a difference in this position? So this is sort of just a uni classic univariate statistical test that sounds super simple. You can just use something like a likelihood ratio test with linear regression. And so where it gets complicated is that uh, models like linear regression and any standard statistical test assume that the data cohorts, so the people in this population, are what technically in machine learning terms is IID, or identically and independently distributed. However, in genetics, uh, and I, I guess in many fields, but especially in genetics, this is basically always violated. And the reason it's violated is that people come from different ethnic backgrounds, and this uh, actually seriously violates this assumption. And um, also, you get often, especially again in genetics, you get sort of pedigrees or clusters of people who are genetically related. And so the end effect of these sort of artifacts is that if you look at the genetic similarity between every two people in the data set, it's not homogeneous. It's quite different. Um, and so you sort of see clusters and different patterns. And so if you apply one of these naive statistical tests, you actually get, you can get completely the wrong answer. And so in two senses, and one sense is that if you rank the list of, say you scan through a million of these positions, which we call SNPs for single nucleotide polymorphism, if you scan through all of these uh, one at a time and you ignore the problem versus actually using a model that properly corrects for it, you'll completely change the rank order. And so what people usually do is sort of step down the list, right? And so you're actually going to be stepping down the wrong list. And the other thing that it does is it actually causes you to threshold incorrectly on this list. So some diseases are highly polygenic. You could have thousands of markers that are actually related to the disease, and other are very uh, sort of more monogenic, where there's only a few. And so when you construct this list, you basically want to have a rough idea of where you should stop in doing expensive downstream work. Yeah, so, so sorry, the, the list you're talking about is the list of the sort of the ranked list of experiments you'd like to run to see which SNPs are causal? So the list would be, so say you're, you've measured for each person in your cohort a million of these markers or SNPs, um, and now the list is uh, an order of those markers from the one that's most likely to be implicated in the disease to least likely. And you'd, so you'd like to know the correct ordering in terms of probability they're implicated in disease. And you'd also like to know where to threshold them to say, I really think below here they're not going to be related. You were talking about association and then also causality. So do you do any statistical modeling of the difference between association and causality? So I personally haven't done that. Some people have worked in this area. And there's, so there's some sort of interesting uh, approaches based on, on models from sort of Bayesian networks, causality kind of thing. So Eric Schatt many years ago was playing around with combining other data uh, like gene expression. If you bring gene expression in, for example, people, off, which is a sort of, first you can measure the genetics, and then the genetics, if you look at the sort of central dogma of molecular biology, it's called, shows you the flow of information. So you start with genetics. This uh, essentially gets transcribed into RNA and the RNA gets translated into protein. And so there's a, actually a causal uh, sequence here, and so you can leverage insights from this to tease apart some causality, uh, but it's, 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 uh, it's, you know, it's imperfect. Um, and also, before I forget, I didn't actually get to the interesting parts of the actual, <laughs> I, I only set up the problem so far, and I, I actually got sidetracked. Shall I explain some Please of the, what the things? So, right, so within this space, of 
genome-wide association studies, sort of the thing I've been working on is to handle this problem of, where, of the people not being IID. And so at the time that I started to do this, people were just starting to use these models that had been established in plant and animal breeding genetics called linear mixed models. Uh, for this problem, but it was sort of still in development to get them to work well for humans. And by work well, I mean two things in particular. One is they scale very badly, as I'll explain in a second. The other is it wasn't clear how to sort of actually best construct them to get the best answer, irrespective of computation. And so I think in machine learning, people don't use this term mixed effect model or linear mixed effect model, but it, it's actually a big multivariate Gaussian that is very much the Gaussian process regression, only we don't usually use it for prediction. We use it for statistical hypothesis testing uh, for this problem I described. And so for listeners who are familiar with that, you can think that in terms of time complexity and space complexity, it maps to that. Uh, except that we're also only using linear kernels, in effect, whereas in, you know, in machine learning, people would use uh, much more sophisticated or, or you know, different kinds of kernels, which, which are used a little bit in genetics, but the main work is with a linear kernel. And so in any case, the work I did with my collaborators here from Microsoft, which was Christoph Lippert and David Heckerman, was to make these models dramatically more efficient, uh, essentially using some algebraic tricks that hadn't been recognized in the genetics community. So refactoring the likelihood and being able to sort of boil things down to a spectral decomposition that we could cache and reuse. And essentially, given a spectral decomposition, we could make the computation look like linear regression in terms of complexity for every one of these markers tested. And then, uh, and, and some further tricks beyond that on how to actually make the spectral decomposition itself uh, much cheaper to do via some approximation techniques. Um, so that was one angle, is the sort of the complexity. And this isn't just some sort of theoretical aspect. Like, this actually changed what kind of data people could analyze. So people now routinely, or not routinely, but it's becoming routine to have, say, 100,000 people. And so that's it. Like, and when you're scanning through a million of these markers, this is like a huge uh, computational burden. And then the other angle is in the course of doing that, one of the things we did was to change how we constructed this linear kernel by essentially subsampling some set of genetic markers that were being used to construct it, which has the effect of making it low rank, which has the effect of enabling us to compute it more cheaply. And when we were doing that, we started to think more deeply about the problem and discovered that actually the way people were in fact constructing this kernel was a bit suboptimal. And uh, what we did was we did something quite simple, which later on we tried to beat with much more sophisticated uh, machine learning approaches having to do with feature selection. But in the end, we essentially uh, used something that's like a univariate feature selection to choose which genetic markers with which to put in the, uh, to construct the kernel. And this actually had the effect of, of improving these models, and in fact, in one case, solving an open problem that had been uh, put forth in Nature Genetics, one of the premier uh, journals in this area. So that was uh, pretty exciting, especially since we hadn't constructed this approach for that problem, and we sort of saw it, and we thought about it, and thought, you know what, since we're doing the right thing, this is likely to work you know, for reasons that we could see. And, and then, in fact, just out of the box, it did. So that was quite exciting. Can you tell us more about the open problem? I can. It's a little bit hairy, but let's see if I can give it a shot. So it's a pretty niche topic. So the, the problem here is that you have uh, so some confounder, which is a non-genetic cause of disease. So let's think that it's like a factory which appears in a very local region geographically. So let's, in the paper, this is sort of synthetically set up. So you could imagine a country laid out on a grid and where the genetics, uh, because of the way people uh, 
um, mate, the genetics has a correlation with the spot on the grid because people who are closer to each other are more likely to mate. And so you see a pattern of the genetics following this grid. And now, uh, as I mentioned, aside from that, you also have this non-genetic non, uh, cause, which is some environmental thing, which is a very local spot on this grid. And so it turns out that in genetics, um, there are some of these uh, markers or SNPs which are very rare uh, because there's been a mutation that's happened more recently. And when they're very rare, they tend to be correlated with very local regions, much like this factory. And because these are both sort of very local effects on this grid, they kind of have an interplay and they cause this problem of the, uh, the factory being a confounding factor and essentially preventing you from figuring out which SNPs are causal when you, or you know, associated hmm. when you do this analysis. And the standard techniques that people had been using at this time were standard linear mixed models and something also called Eigenstrat based on principal components analysis. And these both failed, as well as all the attempts to modify these by people were also failing. And we came along and basically said, if you use a linear mix model, but you, you, know, you construct the kernel in this particular way with feature selection, which is actually picking out the rare variants that you need, then the problem is actually uh, quite doable. Recently, you were also working on applying machine learning to uh, the CRISPR technique. And right. I want to talk about that. Yeah. First of all, explain to us what it is. Right. So. Uh, CRISPR is an exciting new technology that's arisen in the past few years, and it also has a fascinating history. And, and, it's, and it's also quite a testament to uh, funding basic research, because where it originated from are actually bacteria researchers who noticed these very strange patterns, uh, which actually they eventually called clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, which is where <laughs> CRISPR comes from. But they didn't quite know what they were. And then in around 2005 or 2007, it was actually a Danish yogurt company noticed these same things uh, in the DNA of their bacteria. And furthermore, they noticed that with particular versions of them, some yogurts were essentially uh, becoming, were, were resistant to infection and others were not. Wow. And by virtue of recognizing this pattern, they noticed that it actually had to do with a sort of an immune defense mechanism in the bacteria. And so the way it works is quite interesting, this immune uh, mechanism. So it has sort of two parts. So what happens is when a bacteria gets infected with a virus, if it actually survives, it essentially makes a copy of part of the virus and stores it in, the, in its DNA. And that's a little sequence of about 20 uh, letters or nucleotides. And in order to separate these different things, so I'll call these like virus memories, if you will, and to separate these memories, it has these little palindrome repeats in between them. So that's what the system is. And then what happens is when the bacteria gets infected again by such a virus, uh, then the bacteria can recognize the virus by virtue of this sort of stored memory. And what happens is that it sort of makes a copy of it. It attaches some sort of genetic scissors to it, which then by floating around finds the virus and actually chops it up. So that's the that's you know that's the defense mechanism, but that's not what CRISPR is used for now. So what happened is some very clever people at Berkeley just three years ago um, and collaborators uh, elsewhere uh, noticed that they could co-opt the system to do gene editing. And gene editing basically means going into anywhere in the genome, in any cell, in any organism, being able to either just uh, you know, say, I don't want this gene to function, so just sort of kill it, or to change it and say, I want to change this letter or that letter. So that's gene editing, and it's long been a goal of molecular biology because it would help with all kinds of problems like drug development and gene therapy and things like this. And so uh, 
they there have been several stabs at doing this, but they've all had limitations. And CRISPR really is, is revolutionary because it works so much better and so much more efficiently, and can be uh, you can get up and running with it so much more quickly. And so what you do is you essentially create synthetic memory. So I describe this natural thing where you get a viral memory, but what if you just create any of memory you want, uh, which is going to match wherever you want in the genome, uh, and then that's exactly where it's going to go, and then you can coerce it via different mechanisms to either cut the gene, which will disable it, or to actually repair the gene, but with a new letter or nucleotide, thereby editing it. So that's the system. Um, and then you were able to uh, take take ML and apply it to CRISPR to make it essentially cheaper, easier to use, right? Yeah, so it's one of these nice places where biology is is just moving ahead like crazy, and but has a bottleneck where it can be helped dramatically by using applied statistics or machine learning. And so it's been a very deeply satisfying collaboration with folks at the Broad Institute, in particular John Dench and Ian Smith. And so what happened is they, they're sort of at the forefront of pushing this technology from the sort of laboratory laboratory wet lab perspective and I heard them give a talk and they mentioned essentially that one of the problems is when you're doing gene knockdown so you want to just disable this gene that this CRISPR system can in theory sort of be deployed at say you know hundreds of parts of the gene and some of these will work and some of these won't work and so uh, what you want to know for your you know you have some lab and you're not actually doing research in CRISPR you just want to use it for your application you don't want to go through hundreds of things this is too expensive it's too time consuming and so if you can know which of the possible sort of ones that adhere to the theoretical CRISPR system will work then you know you can do things far more cheaply and efficiently and so we took a, a, a I was going to say large set of data but it's actually a fairly small set of data so we what they did is they systematically scanned all possible ways to do it for <clears throat> about 17 genes and then they measured how uh, how well this knockdown worked for each of these genes which actually measuring how well it works itself is quite a challenge and is quite a noisy process so the sort of supervised labels we get are quite um, not clean let's say and they come from also two different kinds of laboratory experiments so they're not quite quite on the same footing, uh, and so that's actually one of the challenges. But in any case, now that we have access to this large data set of what works and what doesn't work, you can cast it as a machine learning problem. Uh, and the only thing you need to do is you need to say for each sort of you know row of this data matrix, which is a guide, which is a 20 nucleotide sequence, and how well it worked for a particular gene, you need to featureize this, right? So, And there's actually a host of, of ways people have been doing this already in biology, and we leveraged a lot of that knowledge, and plus we use some sort of clever insights from our collaborator, John, on what other features might help. So the thermodynamics, for example, of this uh, particular string, and, and in particular, small parts of it, the thermodynamics of the end, or the middle, or the start. And so by com combining all these things, we then uh, sort of did a, a very, um, we treated it as a Netflix competition in a way, which is we said, we don't care about a new method. We want to win the contest, and the contest is with ourselves. So we want to like really, like, because people are going to use this stuff. Like, right. we know. And in fact, so the work we've done is going to, is about to be deployed in the server at the Broad Institute, as well as through our cloud server here at Microsoft. And already, like, we haven't formally published this, and we were already getting actually quite a few requests to use it. So it's, it's deeply satisfying. Um, to have something used like that so immediately. But we didn't actually develop any new 
machine learning here, we just kind of ran through scikit-learn, took a whole bunch of different algorithms, and you know, but we, you know, it took a lot of thought on how to evaluate it. So standard measures like AUC didn't make sense. Previously, people had been binarizing the target variable to zero one. It turned out this was a huge loss of information, which we could demonstrate. Uh, and so, and we started thinking even just about the evaluation metrics. So our problem is in some sense similar to uh, web uh, queries in that we only care about the top things, right? We don't care if the bottom is completely out of order. We care that the top five predictions. Can you tell us kind of more formally what the what the problem is? So you, there's yeah. a gene and you're trying to figure out how to, what, uh, you know what the best way to knock the gene out is or yeah, can you so kind of explain yeah i'll tell you exactly formally from a machine learning perspective what it is is so how someone i'll tell you how someone would use the server which is Perfect. of course different than training the model but so someone would come along and they say i want to knock down gene a then they would uh our what our server will do is it will scan through gene a and it'll tell you every part of the gene that crispr could be deployed it has a few constraints mm. and then maybe 300 positions then for each of those 300 positions it will use our predictive model to score them to tell you how likely it is to knock down the gene which also therefore ranks them and then what they would do is they would probably take the top most of those and say that's the one we're going to use to knock down this gene and if it didn't work they would work down the list I see. So, so when you say that the, that just the top K is all that matters, then you figure that as long as you get a good one in the top several, then exactly. you don't care what exactly. the rest of the order is. Right. So. And so we started thinking because of this that we should start using measures from information retrieval, like uh, like discounted cumulative gain and things like this. But after playing with it for a while, we discovered that we, because we have actually so little data, in the sense that when people do web queries, you have like thousands of web queries where each one gets a ranked list back. But for us, we have only 17 genes. And it turns out when you throw out a lot of the data in your error measure, then you get very high variance on it. And so we sort of backed out of that, backed out of that until we ended up, in fact, with just a Pearson correlation as our final measure. Uh, and so this, you know, it sounds very simple, but it actually had a big impact on investigating what features work, what models work. And I think will change how people, you know, who develop further in this direction will evaluate their models. So a lot of your work seems to be taking um, uh, well-researched, well well-established machine learning techniques and applying them to biology. So where do you think things are headed next? Well, so let me clarify that. So CRISPR, that's absolutely the case. But this is actually the first time I've actually ever done that. Because when you grow up in the machine learning field, you're taught that this is not a useful endeavor. And I, I think I'm old enough now to recognize that it can be. However, for someone trained in machine learning, it can be a bit boring at times to do that. But, you know, I'm certainly glad we did it here. Uh, but I sort of go back and forth between these two things where I really do like to also develop new machine learning. Yeah, like the scalability stuff you were just talking about. Yeah, that's definitely. Those uh, are new methodological ideas. Right, right. As well, basically all my previous work has been uh, that kind of thing. But so, but the thing is that biology now, the I think one of the main bottlenecks in a lot of biology is you get this very high throughput data where you're generating tons of data, not necessarily with a hypothesis up front, which is different from how biological science was conducted in earlier days. And then you go ask the questions after. And so that can often be tricky because it means you haven't designed the experiment for many questions and that yields sometimes uh, not great results and some disputes in the community about, in fact, whether this is a correct conclusion or not. Um, but, uh, but I think without machine learning right now, biology would be in a much worse position. But and the flip side of that is I think a lot of machine learning people are really, it, you know, digging in on real problems and thinking more deeply about what it means to solve a real problem as well. So I think they contribute 
to each other in a really synergistic way. Yeah, it, it seems like a lot of the, the best methodological contributions arise from problems that people really have, of course. And it's easy yeah. to work on problems you think exist versus ones that really do exist. Right. And it sounds like some of the stuff you're doing is, you know, is really at the cutting edge of kind of new questions that, that need methodological answers. Yeah, absolutely. And so, in fact, the CRISPR stuff uh, is... You know, our plan was not just to do this off-the-shelf thing. We were That was to get our hands wet, to understand the problem, to see what kind of models worked. And we're actually working now with our intern, Miriam Huntley, on some ensemble methods uh, because we found that that was what was working best, and it led to some new ideas on just a pure machine learning front. And so uh, it's also inspiring in that way. But the problem is such an important one that because we had good results with the, you know, out-of-the-box machine learning, we said we need to get this out there first and not <laughs> wait until we have a, you know, a fancy NIPSYSH type paper in fact. So yeah, and more broadly though, there's a whole host of problems that machine learning is used in in biology. So it's been incorporated into statistical genetics as I already mentioned, and then I mentioned this CRISPR problem, but it's it's all over the place. It's um, it's in trying to understand sort of the, n the network of information, if you will. So one of the things people are interested in is sort of uh, how the protein levels are controlled. And so the way that happens is that one protein, which is a transcription binding factor, comes in near what's called the promoter of a gene, sort of the beginning of the gene, and it can either repress it, uh, its expression or increase its expression, and you get whole networks of things which affect each other. And so here you get things like causality uh, coming into play, uh, you know, what's a direct causal link versus an indirect one, and you also get uh, questions, predictive questions of to will this thing bind over here, like what kind of patterns does that protein tend to bind to, and then how does it interact with the, you know, the fact that the genome actually, you know, you see it historically when we all grew up, this is sort of double helix, but in fact that thing is actually in places it's completely curled up into a ball and inaccessible in other places it's quite accessible and that's very important so people are also using machine learning to try and predict where the dna is accessible where it's not accessible and, and many other problems like this so how do you stay abreast of new assays that are coming out and and <laughs> sort of like um you know th it seems like there's so much opportunity that you both need to i mean you need to stay on top of like the ml literature and yeah. you need to stay on top yeah. of the sort of hardcore <laughs> biology literature and then you have to find a way to prioritize and Absolutely. create collaborations with Absolutely. these amazing new uh, new things so and actually being here in boston or cambridge area it's like being in a candy store mm -hmm. like this is you know the epicenter one of the epicenters of this kind of stuff there's so there's an endless supply of phenomenal collaborators there's actually not a lot of machine learning people around here um, in particular doing this kind of stuff so it's kind of wide open, but so it, one definitely needs to prioritize prioritize collaborations. Or you like because it's just it's so easy to be overcommitted. I'm already as everybody is <laughs> overcommitted, and uh, but in, and in terms of staying abreast in the literature, that's a great question. And actually, uh, someone just asked me this quite recently, and I, I sort of threw up my hands and said like it's impossible. Um, to do that and I just try to talk to as many people as I can I try to go to meetings and just through osmosis keep my you know finger on the pulse uh, but you know I basically what I do spans machine learning and apply and applied statistics both Bayesian both frequentist and a range of, of biological domains and some you know some people make careers of just like one narrow slice of one of these and uh, and so you know, I just do my best, and I think, you know, by working with really bright people, having excellent interns, having excellent colleagues, and just getting out there and talking to a lot of people is the best way to stay abreast. And then when something arises that seems of interest or utility, then, you know, then to dive in a bit more deeply. 
Sounds like fun. It's it's a great fun and quite a challenge. <laughs> Jennifer Liskarden of Microsoft Research New England. That work she did with Nicola Fusi on the CRISPR stuff, really fascinating. Yeah, a lot of fun. I mean, she's a serious computer scientist and a serious biologist. And like you really get the sense talking to her that she's doing the kind of work that's changing people's lives. Definitely. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.